we're going to continue on in our series, Studying Through the Book of Revelation. Um, but before we dig into that, I want to give you the opportunity to just stretch your legs for a moment. And here's what I'd like you to do. And if you're watching online, you can do this in the chat. And it's up to you whether or not you want to stretch your legs. But for just about 30 seconds, I want you to turn to somebody and say, what is the weirdest thing you have heard in Revelation so far? We've been studying this for the past eight weeks. There's no shortage of strange imagery or things that are like, what is he talking about? Uh, just reflect on that for a moment. But if you would, stand for 30 seconds. Tell somebody near you, this was weird. Ready, go. Some, there's some strange stuff out there. All right. Now go ahead and have a seat. Now that we've reminded ourselves, there are some things uh, that are a little bit out there. But the hope is that we're trying to put ourselves in the context in which this was written. We're trying to listen with the ears of the seven churches that John sent this revelation to. And then always, as always, as always, as always, remind ourselves that it's all about Jesus. That there's a message that's being sent. These visions are communicating something about God and that point to Jesus Christ being slain lamb who rose from the grave and is sitting on the throne and that's where we're going and God is working out salvation. There's a lot of question marks along the way. We've hopefully answered some of them, but if you're expecting us to answer all of them, I don't think we can do that. So we're, we're doing our best to make this approachable and usable and understandable and at the end of when we study it, hopefully the goal, the goal for me is that you go, man, it just makes me want to follow Jesus more. Man, it just makes me want to worship God because he is glorious. So that's the hope. And uh, if you have a lot more questions, there's a ton of books that I don't have time to read that you, you're welcome to, to tackle as well. I start with this today because there's been a theme throughout Revelation that we have to talk about. We can't just pretend that it's not there. And it is the violence that we see in Revelation. This may not be a problem for you. This is a problem for a lot of people. Last week, as we were reading through the, some imagery, one of the last things in the chapter was uh, an image of the blood of the martyrs that measured as high as a horse's bridle. Do you remember that? I was thankful that my children were in the other building when we read that part, because that is nightmarish, if we're honest. People have criticized Revelation throughout history because of its violence and God's role and kind of what happens with the plagues that we've been reading about. Here are a couple famous critical comments made about Revelation. D.H. Lawrence said this, Revelation is John's grandiose scheme for wiping out and annihilating everybody who wasn't of the elect. I'm not saying that is true or an accurate understanding, but that's what he thought when he read this book. Biblical scholar John Dominic Crossan called Revelation a book that transforms the nonviolent resistance of the slaughtered Jesus into the violent warfare of the slaughtering Jesus. These are things we have to understand. When people read Revelation, they close it and they say, I cannot go any farther down the road with a God that seems this violent and bloodthirsty. And you may have an answer for that. You may, you may understand your theology. You may have worked that out a long time ago and say, no, 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 it's, it's, we're talking about God. It's different than people. God can do what he wants. I still trust in his goodness. I know that it's all part of his justice. And that's good. I hope that you have a, a good response of explaining this to people who, who aren't believers or who, who don't understand what's happening here. But I need you to listen to this part. There are people in your life that won't go any farther with Jesus 
because of what's in Revelation. All they see is, why is God so angry? Why is he so brutal to people, to his own creation? I think it's our responsibility, not fully, but partially, to help explain what's happening here and bring people back to the table for a conversation so that this is not just a barrier, a deal breaker for people to come to Jesus. Interestingly, the scripture reading that Trish read for us earlier said that it is because of God's righteous acts, because of God's judgment and justice, that the nations will come to worship God. I don't know if you noticed that. It was the last part of the, the scripture that we read. It's because of the justice that we see poured out. It's because of the thing after the, the seven seals are open, the seven trumpets are sounded, the seven bowls of God's wrath, or some translations say God's anger, are poured out. It's because of that that people will go, oh, okay, we're going to come and worship God that's kind of surprising. You would think that it was because of the, you know, the promise of no tears and this, this glorious place where all the wrongs are made right, but it's something about the justice of God that draws people in. And so, with this in mind, I want us to listen this morning to Revelation 16. We're going to try to understand what John is describing and why what it tells us about God is actually good news. And like the disclaimer I made earlier, we may not answer all the questions. We may not bring people fully on board, um, but we'll have thought about this and we'll try to, we'll understand it ourselves so that we can help explain it to people who have hard questions. So, Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and everything in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond. You remember the altar of God, the vision he sees in heaven, the saints beneath the altar, and they say, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they still refused to repent or glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony, yikes, and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the day of God Almighty. And if you didn't have an answer to the question before, what's the weirdest thing you've heard in Revelation so far? Maybe there's a candidate for you. Frogs coming out of the mouth. And then, out of nowhere, you hear a voice that you haven't heard in a while. And if you're reading it in a Bible that has the words of Christ in red letters, these letters are read. Look, 
I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not as to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Okay, now back to the action. They gather the kings together, and the place in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done! And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever, been, has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. And from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Okay. Is anybody having a sense of deja vu? Here, this should sound familiar to you. What we read here is actually a lot like Revelation 8 and 9, with the angels blowing the trumpets and these different plagues happening, except here it's, it's like all the fish in the sea died. Before, do you remember it was a third of the living creatures were killed, a third of the people died. It, it's, it's slightly different, but it reminds us, both of these scenes from Revelation, this allusion to the ten plagues in Egypt. You remember, we, not, nod your head if you remember that we talked about this. That this is imagery from a very famous story, the, the Exodus story, the ten plagues. Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go, so God sends a plague, and then another plague, and then another plague, to try to get him to change his heart, to try to get him to release the prisoners so that they could go and be with God and worship him, but that didn't happen. This is very similar to that. Do you remember when we studied Revelation 8 and 9? We said what we think is happening here is John telling the story of God's judgment of the world, God's final judgment, God's finally ridding evil from his good creation. But he's telling it in three different ways. So there's the seven seals, that's one pass. The seven trumpets that the angels blow, that's another one. The seven bowls that are poured out, that's why we see so many similarities. It's like, oh yeah, there's like angels do something, and then there's plagues, and then there's suffering, and there's still people not repenting. You have God trying to get the attention of a rebellious people and give them one last chance to honor him. But just as before, with each demonstration of God's power and God's justice, the people cling ever more tightly to the beast that they have pledged their allegiance to. And they refuse to listen to God. I don't know if you notice this, but three times in chapter 16 it says, The people cursed God because of the plagues. No matter what happened, they refuse to glorify him. They refuse to change. And if we are troubled by the wrath of God being poured out on evil forces or evil systems, and then the collateral damage of the people who have sided with those evil forces, we need to remember the God creed. This is one response to like, what is happening here? And why is God so bad? Why is God so brutal in these judgments? The God creed. I talked about this a couple years ago, but here's a refresher. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses is talking with God, and uh, God describes himself to Moses. And this is the description that he gets. It's a description that is uh, there in Exodus chapter 34, but it's repeated throughout the Old Testament. You'll find it in Jonah, you'll find it in Joel, in Nehemiah, Lamentations, it's in Chronicles, it's in multiple uh, chapters of the book of Psalms. This is how God 
describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God at his core, according to God, is compassionate and gracious and forgiving and slow to anger. We see that throughout scripture, and we see that description listed here. And we remind ourselves that it was ten plagues in Egypt and not a one-and-done plague. It was God giving people chance after chance after chance to change. And here it's seven bowls of God's wrath and not just one. So unless we think that this is God's knee-jerk reaction or a frustration, something that's, that's, that's immature, we need to remember that God is slow to anger. God is abounding in love. God demonstrates patience. And God gives people chance after chance after chance after chance after chance to come to him. Peter tells us, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He is not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. So the justice of God that we see in Revelation, not just the result of an anger-fueled knee-jerk reaction, it's more of a last straw. And then, it's been 12 chapters since we've heard from Jesus, the red letters in our Bibles, like I said, tell us in the midst of these descriptions of evil being dealt with, Jesus reminds us that like, I'm on my way. Don't forget, I'm coming. He says, look, I come like a thief. And that's just what he said in the Gospels. He said he would come like a thief. It would be sudden. It would be unexpected. And then here's a great phrase for anyone who has ever stood up and preached a sermon. This is my favorite line in the chapter. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. I appreciate you for staying awake during the sermon and remaining clothed. Maybe we can make a banner that says that. Blessed is the one who does those things. But Jesus is reminding his followers that this is not time for cruise control. Now let's think about with our first century minds. Think about the seven churches. Yes, God is sorting out evil once and for all, but people are still believing the lies of the beast. They're still just giving up on their faith and saying, let's just do what everybody else is doing. It's so much easier. Let's just go with the flow. And they're bearing the number of the beast. These are the ones who take on the 666 on their foreheads, their minds, their thoughts, and their hands, their actions bear the number of the beast. Jesus is saying, you're so close. The salvation is so near. Don't do that. But be like the faithful saints, the faithful witnesses who bear the name of God on their minds and on their hearts and on their actions. Don't fall asleep now, Jesus is saying. Don't lose your robe of righteousness. And the first four bowls of God's wrath will bring affliction from the natural world. There's sores on people's bodies, rivers, of, rivers in the sea turn to blood, the sun scorches people, and then the last three bowls bring darkness and drought, and then they prepare the kingdoms of evil for a great battle at a place called Armageddon, with a capital A. Did you notice that in there? They're, they're going to meet at this place called Armageddon. This is another one of those terms that we hear differently than the ancient people would have. We hear the word Armageddon and we think of like the end of the world, right? The zombie apocalypse. There's a giant meteor coming to slam into planet Earth and not even Bruce Willis or Ben Affleck can save us from it. That's what we think of when we think of Armageddon. But ancient people probably would have heard this word more like we would hear Armageddonsburg. What does that make you think of? Battlefield, right? A place where a famous battle 
took place. That's what's, that's what's going on here, we think. It's, it's Har Megiddo. So on, on the plain of Megiddo or on, on, on Mount Megiddo, this is a famous place where the prophets have said that spiritual battles have taken place, actual battles may have taken place here. This is just, it, it's a setting for this final showdown between good and evil. And you've got the dragon and you've got the beast and you have the God of creation and his forces and they're squared off. And that's kind of where the chapter ends. It's like, what's going to happen? It's a face-off. Who are we supposed to root for? We know we're not supposed to root for the dragon and the beast. That's pretty obvious, right? You don't root for those guys. They're the bad guys, right? But can we be celebrating what God is doing? After all of these the sores and the scorching and the deaths and the, just the, the people who are crying out in agony, you're saying... Side with God, and they're saying, no, we can't, we won't. We're, be, we're becoming more and more afraid of God. We're becoming more turned away from God because of what is happening. It seems like what God is doing is causing just as much pain as what God's enemies are doing. So we're back to the question that we started with. What do we do with the kind of justice that we see from God in Revelation? And as though anticipating this question that this might have come up, the angel in heaven says this, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So there's that word. We get a partial explanation here about what God is doing. He's bringing justice to people who deserved it. These people, or at least the beast whose side they have chosen, these are the ones who've silenced the prophets and they have killed innocent people. So God's actions we see are not the bloodlust of a maniac. This is the justice of a righteous judge, according to what we hear in chapter 16. I was at a shopping mall not too long ago with all five of my daughters, including baby June, in the stroller. And we were walking along and I looked up on this upper balcony and there were these nine-year-old boys, and they were spitting on people down below. And it wasn't like, let's, let's time our spit and see how long it takes. It was like, I watched them for a little bit. They were waiting for people to walk below, and they were targeting and trying to hit people on the head with their spit. And I got very angry, and I got very protective of all my girls. That's where we would have walked had I not seen them. And I kind of lost it. And I stormed up the escalator stairs and I walked over to where they were and I got up in their face. Pause the story for a minute. I just want to point out. Whatever happens next in the story, my guess is that you guys will be okay with it. Whatever I did to those boys, you'd be like, good, good. If I shouted at them and yelled at their moms for being bad moms, you'd say, amen, yeah, you should have done that, yeah. If I'd slapped the boba tea out of their hand and spilled it all over the ground, you'd be like, yes, justice is done. If I grabbed one of them by the ankle and dangled him over the balcony to put the fear of dad into him, I think you guys would have been all right with that. Why is that? Because they were punks and they got what they deserved. And I tell you this story and tell it like this to point something out. We all have this desire for justice. We all want to see the wrong things made 
right. I don't think the problem that we have in this world, or even the problem that people have with the God of the Bible, has to do with justice, or even swift and harsh justice. In fact, I think that all of humanity's common desire for justice, to see the wrong things made right, I think that that is because we all bear the image of God. And I think, and some some scholars have even pointed this out, like that is even evidence for the fact that we all come from the same God. Even people who don't believe, when they have this desire for justice, we could say, hey, that's because that's how God is. That comes from God. It's kind of a weird thing to believe. It's kind of a weird thing to feel because there's so much injustice in the world. Where do we get this idea that things ought to be better, that things ought to be right? Shouldn't we, and people have done this for centuries, shouldn't the natural thing to do be look around our world and say like, yeah, stronger people are going to take advantage of weaker people. Wealthier people are going to oppress people who don't have power or opportunity. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it works. Where do we get this sense that something should be done about this? Somebody should stand up for this person. I think that this comes from God. And this is a bit of a side note, but I want to say it anyway. Do you know who's really good at this? It's the younger generation that's coming up. It's young adults who care about justice, who care about things like racial equality, and they care about mental health advocacy. They're into things like sustainability. And even if they don't know it, that's because they bear the image of God. You may see a group of young people uh, out protesting with signs about some kind of injustice in the world, and your thought might be to shout at your TV, hey, you guys should get a job. But what you should be saying to those young people is like, hey, that's from God. That is because you have family resemblance to your heavenly father, because he cares about justice. That's why you care about justice. We should care about justice as well. We all have this built-in desire for justice. In 1841, there was a freeborn African-American man named Solomon Northup. You may know his story. He was drugged and kidnapped and sold as a slave in Louisiana. His story is told in the 2013 movie, 12 Years a Slave. And this is, uh, Darren McRandall has pointed this out. Almost every movie that I reference in a sermon, you probably don't want to watch. They're all bad movies. They're all hard, hard movies to watch. I don't know what that says about me. But 95% of this movie is just an ache for justice. You're just watching one travesty, one just abhorrent thing happen after another. Man, is, is something good going to come of this? Solomon is ripped away from his wife and children. He sold his property and trapped on a plantation. He's brutally abused. He's forced at gunpoint to brutally abuse other slaves. He's betrayed by slaves that he trusted, people in his community. And when he tried to get help from someone like, send word up north that I'm not supposed to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm a free person. Can you just help me? They, they changed his name. They're like, here's my real name. And the people that he trusted, they betrayed him as well. <laughs> is a hard movie to watch. But then, one day, Solomon is out working in a field, and a sheriff shows up with a badge and a gun. He has authority, and he has power, and he rescues Solomon. He knows his true identity. He finds out who he is, where he is, 
He says, this man doesn't belong to you. He's not your property. He's a free man, and he's coming with me right now. And the sheriff whisks him away from the hellish environment that he lived in for the last 12 years. I think what's revealed to John in Revelation is God, who is the sheriff who comes to town to make things right. And he has authority, and he has power. And in a world, in a system that has been having its way at the expense of the powerless for so long, God finally says, enough. He comes in to rid the world of evil's influence once and for all. And that's good news. That's something that we should be excited about. But not everybody thinks so. It's good news for the oppressed, but it's bad news for the oppressors. Think about the slave who owned owned Solomon Northam. When he was emancipated, the slave owner was furious. From his perspective, he thought that he was wronged. He felt like somebody had come and stolen from him. I think that's a lot of what we see today. People are okay with justice as long as that justice doesn't prevent me from doing the things that I want to do. A growing chunk of our population doesn't even believe in the God of the Bible, so why would they voluntarily give up personal freedoms in order to follow him, in order to obey him? And even Christians don't always agree on what is evil and what is not evil. It become very confusing. There are Christians on both sides of the abortion issue, on whether or not we should engage in military combat or not, on what are our obligations specifically to help out the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. We get kind of mixed up in all this. So, so what do we do? What are we supposed to do when the lines are unclear, people don't agree on the definition of what God's justice entails or... Ah, easy to get discouraged, and it's easy to get a little lost in that. Do you want me to tell you what I think? Side note, when I say, do you want me to tell you what I think? You should say no. So let's try that again. Do you want me to tell you what I think? You shouldn't. I mean, I tell you enough what I think, but I think we should look at Jesus. It's a little bit of a paradox, because what I think is that we should listen to Jesus and not Jacob, but anyway, since I'm up here, let's think about what Jesus did, what he modeled for us, what we can learn from his example. What did Jesus do in a world where justice was a blurred line? He loved people. Like I said over here, he served people. He made the wrong things right. He brought the justice of God one act of mercy at a time. He healed people when he could. He drove out demons. He brought God's shalom into the lives of people that were experiencing chaos. And he called people to change their lives in ways that would bring them back into a relationship with the God of creation, God the Father, the, the God of righteousness and justice. And then Jesus trusted God to bring about that justice and defeat evil. So he believed that this description that we see in Revelation 16 was something God was doing. And Jesus allowed himself to be wronged. That's a hard footstep to follow in. And he laid down his life. And we need to remind ourselves that that is the way of the Lamb. And I think when we actually do that, 
when we live like Jesus did, when we sacrifice like Jesus did, and when we lift burdens off of people's shoulders when we can, like Jesus did, I think the world will start to take notice. If it's true that everyone has an ingrained sense that wrong things should be made right, that injustices should not go unanswered, that the punks on the balcony should not get away with spitting on people down below, then I think our small, local acts of mercy and kindness will point people to God. That's kind of what I think anyway. But the advice is look to Jesus and do what he did. If God's new heavens and new earth described at the end of Revelation is as good as we think it is, then glimpses and echoes of that need to break into the here and now. People need to experience it now. At the end of all things, God's perfect, righteous justice will be done. But that doesn't mean we can't preview it now. When Christians support children who need help through organizations like Compassion International and Agape Villages, then I think that's an example of us previewing God's justice. When we fight against human trafficking alongside groups like the International Justice Mission and A21 and Love Never Fails, which is a group that combats human trafficking right here in the Tri-Valley on the 580 corridor, we preview God's justice. When we walk alongside people struggling through broken relationships, we preview God's justice. When we love and serve our neighbors, we preview God's justice. When Christians resist the urge to take revenge or repay evil for evil, then we preview God's justice. There's a hundred ways that we could do this. One of my favorite things that Tri-Valley gets to do from time to time is help relieve financial burdens on families who are in debt. You may not have known that that happens. It's not something we advertise. It's not something that we announce when it happens for reasons that you could probably understand. It's a discreet kind of ministry. When I was younger, I was a recipient of this kind of help from a church. And let me tell you, it previews God's justice. It may seem like a small act, but it means a lot. So listen again to the song of Moses and the Lamb that we heard earlier from Revelation 15. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, and nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What this is telling us is that the righteous acts of God, the past ones, the present ones, and future ones, they are irresistible. People cannot help but see them and go, glory to God. God's shalom brought through his son, Jesus Christ, and through followers of Christ today is irresistible. God using his authority and his power to rescue his people from slavery is irresistible. And God ridding his good creation of evil once and for all is irresistible. Here's a question we should ask ourselves. Is a world that is thirsty for justice, for making the wrong things right, are they seeing it prioritized by the local church? Are we being the salt and the light in the community that Jesus talked about us being? This is our call. And this is our commission. I think there's never been a better time to live it out, to show the world that we serve a God who is active and alive, a God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Will you stand? Let's pray together. Lord, your word nourishes us, it feeds us, it informs us, it challenges us. It gives us our marching orders. And sometimes that's not very clear. But we praise you for being a God of justice. We praise you for being a God who loves so much that he will not tolerate evil. That death will not have the final word. That sickness and chaos will not ravage the ones that we love. That we will stand with you. That we will see justice done. Lord, we trust you even when we don't understand your actions. Help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus the Lamb. His life, his mission, his love, his mercy. And let us partner with him in doing what we can to bring your justice into this world. One act of kindness at a time. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.